my name's Eli Campbell. Um, I've been researching boycotting student loans for the past few years. Um, I'm so excited to have this panel here to talk about this today. Um, I just want to go over briefly the, the format and then we'll get into it. Um, I'd like everyone, you know, we can just go around and introduce ourselves and then I'm going to give kind of like an opening lead into the discussion and then for about 15 minutes and then I've got a few questions for the panelists and then we can get into questions from the audience and just open the discussion up. Um, so yeah, would you guys want to go down and introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, so my name is Daniela Medina. I'm um, a visiting professor of economics at Marist College, formerly at Bard College, as well as SUNY New Paltz. Um, I have my MS in economic policy and theory from the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College. Um, my focus was econometrics of poverty and inequality research. Um, but mostly I take an intersectional feminist Marxist approach to trying to look at Households' ability to react to economic shocks, and of course, student debt is obviously like you know at the forefront of this issue. Um, student debt hinders consumption directly, wealth accumulation, small business formation, household formation in general via you know reproduction and the viability of home ownership for the current generation and others who are so, and other generations who are still struggling to pay off their loan debts. Um, yeah, um, so I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I'm Jill Stein. Um, I'm a uh, medical doctor. I used to practice clinical medicine, and now I practice political medicine because it's the mother of all illnesses, and we got to fix that one. If we're going to fix everything else, that's literally killing us. So I'm, you know, I'm really interested in how we build the power that we actually have, that uh, the, you know, the powers that be are trying to talk us out of, and you know, I'm really interested in how we build coalitions, how we get together as uh, social movements and how we then assert that power politically and do both of them, because neither one alone is, is going to do it. we got to do both. we got to challenge power, but to do that alone is um, fruitless. Um, and I'm very interested in student debt as a really convergent issue. It's, in many ways, it's, it's sort of the mother of all issues. There's, there's a moral imperative to fix it, to obliterate it, and there's a practical imperative, because without the power of our younger generation to drive social change, it won't happen. So uh, that's why I'm here. Uh, I'm, I'm not as <laughs> impressive as anyone else. <laughs> but uh, I'm David Ox. I'm the campaign manager for Mike Gravel's 2020 campaign, if you can call it a campaign. Uh, and um, I'm interested in, in debt generally as a force, uh, you know, an eternal force, uh, for preserving the status quo. There's a, a fantastic book by, by David Graeber on the history of debt um, that got me interested in the issue. Yeah. Excellent. We're going to be talking about David Graeber for sure. So, for the past few years, I've been researching and writing about a hypothetical boycott of student loans. That's right. Steal your education. Why? Why not? It seems that the times we live in are not normal. There is a meme going around lately that says... Retweet if your retirement plan is basically civilization will crumble before I'm 65 and money will be meaningless anyway. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it, the world is all messed up. The nation is sick, trouble is in the land, confusion all around. Perhaps these times are extraordinary, unique in the whole of human history, but on the other hand, maybe this is the moment in which it is finally possible for the arc of the moral universe to bend enough to reach justice the present fully connected with its preceding history. It must be that moment because our survival depends upon it. On April 3, 1968, 
Dr. King gave his final speech. Among other things, he advised striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. And the next day, he was assassinated. Listening to these words in January 2017, seeking wisdom for troubling times just a few days before Trump's inauguration, it struck me that this logic could apply to a movement demanding the cancellation of student debt. I knew that there were corporations making a profit off of student debt. I had seen letters coming from my brother from Navient. What I came to learn is that the student loan industry doesn't just make money servicing student debt, they are also using it to create speculative financial instruments called student loan asset-backed securities, or SLABs, which I just find to be a very strange name. Um, a Citigroup primer on SLABs from 2002 subtitled Education, the Investment of a Lifetime, reports, the beginning of the student loan ABS market is usually dated to November 1992, when the SEC adopted Rule 3A7 of the Investment Company Act of 1940. So there's a very specific start date uh, for when the banks started gambling with student loans. If you have student debt, your loans may be bundled up into one of these assets. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and debt can be an asset, except, of course, if you're a student borrower. If you go on the website for Navient or any of the other major servicing companies and scroll past all the pictures of conspicuously racially diverse groups of people that are smiling too much and convoluted propaganda about how these corporations are really trying to help borrowers, you can find a page titled For Investors. Here you will find everything you need to know about the latest offerings of slabs and servicing reports for the older slabs. Some of you may be reminded of the mortgage-backed securities that played a major role in the housing bubble that caused the global financial crisis a decade ago. I'm sorry to tell you that the con here is exactly the same, but instead of gambling with people's homes, they're gambling with our futures and our right to education. If you take a pool of tens of thousands of student loans, it is less likely that the whole pool will default than that individual loans will default. Factor in the high interest rates and the fact that since 2005, student debt is almost never dischargeable in bankruptcy, thank you, Joe Biden, and debt becomes an asset. These assets are then sold to investors, traded in secondary markets, with the usual suspects on Wall Street acting as middlemen. Each financial quarter, this industry issues billions of dollars in student loan asset-backed securities. In the past few years, student debt cancellation has gone from being a radical idea to the center of the dialogue. I'm sure many of you saw in the presidential debates this week that Bernie Sanders proposed his plan to cancel all student debt, private and uh, public. We also have Elizabeth Warren's plan, which is, cancels less of the debt, but is still significant. Um, but the presidential candidates and the media are still not talking about slabs, and they are not talking about the major conflicts of interest given the fact that these companies like Navient are gambling with student loans while under contract with the Department of Education to service the loans. They're making a profit off of the government and off of all of us. Above all else, what I've learned through this project has convinced me that even if one of these candidates becomes president, Congress and the Department of Education will not cancel student debt until we rise up to demand it and utilize the power of economic withdrawal to send a message that can't be ignored. This project has led me down many different paths of inquiry, but primarily I've concerned myself with studying the tactics of revolutionary movements, especially student movements, and trying to understand the vulnerabilities of the market for slabs. 
Could a student debt boycott be an effective strategy for the intersecting movements today demanding a radical transformation of society? And at the root of these issues, what is the student's debt to society in 2019 when the world is on fire and they're telling us to act like everything is fine? I've done my best to find answers to these questions for myself, and I would like to share my conclusions. I'm not an economist, a political scientist, or a historian, and I did borrow $34,000 from the federal government to get an art degree, and I'm never going to pay it back. But hear me out, and then we'll hear this marvelous panel weigh in. My first conclusion is that throughout history, there seems to be an undeniable connection between education and revolution. Certainly in the 20th century, this has often been the case, but even in ancient times, educated people are often at the heart of revolutionary movements. The unique, unique social position of students allows them to take certain risks in challenging the status quo that the working class is generally unwilling or unable to take for a number of reasons. But once students disrupt business as usual and find solidarity with the workers, their struggles become connected. One of the most dramatic examples of this is the infamous, infamous May 68 student uprising in France just a month after Dr. King was assassinated. In the span of a month, protests over the arrest of six students at one university turned into mass student demonstrations and a nationwide general strike that sent their president into hiding. Couldn't we use some of that energy in the USA right now? Another relevant aspect of the social position of students is that the student body is alienated from the workforce and continually replaced. A manifesto published by the Situationist International, which had a great influence on the French students in 1968, put it this way. The student leads a double life, poised between his present status and the utterly separate future status into which he will one day be abruptly thrust. For instance, I did not know, despite having been interested in this issue for years, that until quite recently I found out that in 2011, before I had ever signed a master promissory note, Activists at Occupy Wall Street, including NYU professor Andrew Ross, had explicitly called for a pledge of refusal to repay student debt. Um, my second major conclusion is that given the dangerous circumstances we find ourselves in, student revolution is actually a necessity to make the changes we need to make happen. Um, Rising fascism, Trump's concentration camps, police brutality, prison slavery, the sixth mass extinction. I don't really need to list it all, right? We all see what's going on. I think it is beyond question that students and everyone else with them need to rise up, not just to support candidates or demand incremental reforms. Jim Morrison said it, we want the world and we want it now. In the past year, students all over the world have begun school striking for climate justice and the power of economic withdrawal would seem to be a logical next step for this movement and perhaps a way to connect the struggle of students and graduates who are separated in this double life. My third conclusion is that, from my own personal experience, the experiences of my peers, and especially learning about the experiences of student revolutionaries in the 60s, I can only conclude that the primary purpose of student debt is not to make a profit, but to prevent student revolution from happening in the United States. Mario Savio, a student leader in the Berkeley Free Speech Movement in 1964, wrote, Students are permitted to talk all they want so long as their speech has no consequences. Like many student activists of his time, he expressed a concern that the university was becoming an institution whose primary objective was to manufacture students as products for government or industry to consume. 
In the market for slabs, we have a dark manifestation of those fears where we are products, assets, and literal streams of income for these investors. And finally, my last conclusion is that there are significant vulnerabilities in the slabs market that could be exploited as leverage by by an organized movement of student debtors. I base that conclusion on reading the reports and financial information that these companies are required by law to publish when they issue slabs. Here are some gems from one of Navient's prospectus supplements under the risk factors section. You know, risks to the investors, not risks to us pawns in this absurd game they're playing with our lives. We cannot give any assurance whether in the future a functioning market for student loan asset-backed security notes may once again disappear and your offered notes may be subject to an ongoing period of failed auctions. An economic downturn may cause the market for auction rate notes to cease to exist and holders of auction rate securities may be unable to sell their securities and may experience a potentially significant loss of market value. The companies gambling in this secondary market for slabs have CEOs, boards of directors, shareholders, and investors. They have a bottom line, and if a popular political movement threatens their bottom line, it will have an impact. Even if a boycott did not directly cause a collapse in the secondary market for student loan asset-backed securities, symbolic acts of resistance may be what is necessary to finally spark public awareness about what is being done with our debt, ideally before we start voting for anyone in 2020. The student loan capitalists are expecting us and future classes of students to continue borrowing money and making payments for the rest of our careers, just scraping by so we can pad their portfolios. The final maturity dates of some of these slabs are as late as the 2060s, 2070s, or even 2080s. The latest I saw from Navient was 2083. If they think anyone is going to be paying their student loans in 2083, I I just can't even speak to that. Even in the face of overwhelming evidence, even from conservative institutions like the Brookings Institute, that student loan defaults are going to increase greatly in the next few years, they want every last penny before the house of cards comes crashing down. Millennials and Gen Z, although the media does that thing where they think everyone under the age of 50 is a millennial, are constantly being blamed for ruining the economy. We might as well actually do it. Of course... Any movement preparing to do this needs to be ready for lectures on personal responsibility from reactionary liberals and fossilized conservatives. And to them we say, just in the past two decades, Congress authorized trillions of dollars to be spent on bipartisan wars for oil, bipartisan bailouts for the criminals on Wall Street, while ignoring the climate emergency, even though Exxon knew in 1977 that fossil fuels were increasing the temperature of the atmosphere. Weren't, um, and now the national debt is approaching $23 trillion. Weren't those our dollars at some point? Who was more fiscally irresponsible, students or Congress? Instead of funding education and providing for our future security, our representatives cashed checks from the student loan industry and said to hell with the students. Just a few generations ago, there was virtually no such thing as student debt the way it exists today. What has happened in the last 50 years? since Jimi Hendrix played the national anthem at Woodstock this August. For one thing, Americans started borrowing money for just about everything. And in the Reagan era, Wall Street went into overdrive, securitizing all that debt, turning our liabilities into financial instruments. This postmodernism has been one of the driving forces of the economy, but really it's the culprit that has produced the obscene income and wealth inequality that we are seeing today. 
However, despite the abnormality of the times we live in, this is actually the oldest story we know. Professor David Graeber, an anthropologist who was involved in Occupy Wall Street, wrote the book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which delves deeply into the history of debt and its relationship to our basic morality, told through an examination of different cultures and traditions over time, the cyclical conflicts between creditors and debtors, and the larger cycle of societies moving between credit systems and cash systems. At the end of this incredible book, he calls for one specific thing. Bring back some modern form of the Old Testament tradition of the Jubilee year, which is described in Leviticus 25. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Economist and Professor Michael Hudson, who is actually speaking on a panel at this very moment, down somewhere at Left Forum, um, recently published a book called Forgive Them of Their Debts on this very subject, in which he lays out the long history of debt cancellations from Mesopotamia in the third millennium BC through biblical times, Greece, Rome, and onto the Middle Ages, connecting this history to our modern capitalist era. What's interesting is that um, Martin Luther King, in his speech in which he talks about the power of economic withdrawal, actually talks in a very similar way about how he is glad to have been alive in 1968 and how if he could talk to God and be alive in any period of time, he says, I wouldn't want to be alive in, in the biblical times. I wouldn't want to be alive in Greece or Rome. I'd want to be here right now in this moment to fight for the, the moment we're in. And through all of these times, um, Michael Hudson shows that debt cancellations happen quite consistently throughout history. Um, and up until relatively recently, there were a fundamental safety valve preventing the breakdown of social order when the creditor class drives debtors to despair or revolt. My understanding is that Michael Hudson is not in favor of a student debt boycott last time I talked to him, but one thing he has at various times argued is that debts that can't be paid won't be paid. Um, of particular interest to our American culture, regardless of your religious beliefs, and this was a really big surprise to me, Hudson asserts that the central program of Jesus Christ attested to in the New Testament was forgiveness not of sins but of literal debts. Hudson writes, Jesus announced in his inaugural sermon that he had come to proclaim the jubilee year of the Lord cited by Isaiah, whose scroll he unrolled. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me, or anointed me, excuse me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Some translations of the Bible use the word debt and some sin, but reading the Lord's Prayer, for instance, give us this our daily bread and forgive us of our debts, for we have forgiven our debtors, takes on a new meaning in this context. The tradition of debt cancellation that Jesus references had origins as distant to his era as he was to our time today, but its importance to the present as it was then cannot be understated. Evidence of this is attested to by Flavius Josephus, a first century CE Jewish historian who fought in the first Roman Jewish war and wrote histories of the Jewish people after defecting to the Roman side. Roughly three decades after the historical Jesus is estimated to have lived, the radical Jewish zealots broke into the great temple and, according to Josephus, carried the fire to the place where the archives were reposited and made haste to burn the contracts belonging to the creditors and thereby to dissolve their obligation for paying their debts, and this was done in order to gain the multitude of those who had been debtors, and that they might pursue, persuade the poorer sort to join in their insurrection with safety against the more wealthy. The irony that we view these ancient civilizations as being primitive 
when they had regularly confronted the problems between creditors and debtors that are destroying our social order and had a simple solution, just cancel working class debts periodically. But our modern world cannot conceptualize it because we can't imagine anything other than late stage capitalism. The grind to get that daily bread is a matter of life and death, but this is actually somewhat of a modern phenomenon. David Graeber notes that the first known use of the word freedom in a political document is in the first known general debt cancellation issued in 2402 BC by a Sumerian king. Graeber and Hudson both um, note that historically the words freedom and liberty explicitly refer to the rights of debtors, but during the Roman Empire this gradually changed to mean freedom for creditors to do whatever they wished with those indebted to them. I think as Americans, when we hear Donald Trump talk about freedom and liberty, we are familiar with this definition of those terms. Um, a few weeks ago, I was participating in an action outside Governor Cuomo's office in Albany, demanding the passage of the Climate and Community Protection Act, which is a piece of legislation that we did pass, but it is somewhat insufficient to actually stop the sixth mass extinction. Um, one of the organizers said something to the effect that nothing else happening in the Capitol building today was important as passing the CCPA. And while I sort of agreed with that, um, leaving the Capitol building, my friends and I encountered a group of um, New York City taxi drivers. They were calling for two specific things. End the silence of taxi drivers who have been committing suicide due to financial hardships and cancel unpayable debts of drivers who have taken out loans to afford their taxi medallions whose values have been destroyed by Uber and Lyft. Another good tweet going around lately says the following. If we forgive student loan debt, what next? We forgive medical debt? We outlaw punitive interest rates? We organize economy around the needs of the many rather than the interests of the few? Is that what you want, a society where human life has value? A student debt boycott wouldn't just be about canceling student debt but about provoking a confrontation with the creditor class. If student debtors take the lead, perhaps as in France in 1968, the indebted working class will stand in solidarity. So I put this question before the panelists, the audience, those watching online, to the activists and organizers demanding a radical transformation of this country, and the 44 million student debtors. Is it time to organize the power of economic withdrawal and stop paying our student loans? Thank you. So um, I'd like to give all the panelists some time to respond, um, and then I have questions, and then we'll start taking your questions. I wanted to kind of start by um, talking about how, I mean, as you're recounting the history of debt, thinking about how the broader issue here is systematic, right? We have an unrestrained financial sector. We have you know, completely unrestrained financial innovation. I mean, we're, we're seeing all of these new assets pop up pretty much out of, out of thin air. They have these mathematical justifications that are kind of, you know, not accessible to us. We can't necessarily understand them. The, the process by which they create these assets is completely esoteric. So we see this, like, extension of, like, these, this debt-anchoring credit availability over time, right? And, you know, we can imagine that over time, household consumption will be increasingly more and more funded by debt overall, which seems like we could head towards this dystopian future of complete debt servitude, right? So I've noticed um, a lot of similarities and also some differences between the mortgage crisis and also what could be an impending student debt crisis. So um, with mortgage-backed securities, right, they're, the asset that they're based on is housing, right? The, the actual mortgage debt 
accumulated. So as we're seeing housing prices rise over time, um, we see the value of mortgage-backed securities rise over time. So there's this like you know collateralization process where they're combining all of these uh, mortgage-backed securities into um, one specific security where they're kind of broken up in specific tranches. Um, you know, over time we saw another market evolve there. We have people gambling on that debt, and that's something that of course like we see happening. I mean, the, we can't necessarily get access to the data that breaks down what's called uh, credit default swaps and uh, collateralized debt obligations, which is kind of like a third market for these things where, honestly, investors are gambling on our likelihood of default. And they're kind of hoping that we default to some extent, right? Um, because that's the payout. The volatility is the payout. So um, I've studied um, in the, the Minsky School of Thought, so I mean, which is very, very focused actually on something called money manager capitalism, where we're seeing the formation of an asset price bubble, right? So in the mortgage-backed security, when, when mortgage-backed securities formed an asset price bubble, we saw, you know, uh, the, the value of that asset rise over time. We couldn't tell how much of that asset price value was rising due to speculation or just due to the productive value of that asset. The reason is we don't actually have indicators for asset price inflation. We don't actually know um, what's causing the price of assets to rise, right? So when housing prices went up, we saw all these investors through leverage, honestly, through the in- increasing their, their, their debts, um, invest that debt into purchasing mortgage-backed securities. And at a certain point, housing prices started to fall. So the value of mortgage-backed securities also started to fall. They started to tank, right? We saw the U.S. Uh, debt-to-GDP ratio go from 60% to 110%. And this was a global crisis, right? So we saw Europe go from 40% in terms of their debt-to-GDP ratio to 90%. Um, All economists agree that if we saw another asset price bubble, we would not be able to escape a depression. You know, we were able to, through expansionary monetary policy, increasing our money supply, right, we were able to try to, you know, put some of that debt on the the central bank's balance sheets. They hold, initially it was 800... um, $800 $800 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities over time has decreased in value to $400 billion. And that's on the central bank's balance sheets to try to take risk out of the financial sector, right? If we're willing to bail out the banks, right, we're willing to bail out the banks who made these investments not out of necessity, not out of, um, you know, some social investment because, you know, it's socially imposed on us that we know that we can't enter the labor market with full faith that we will survive if we don't get an education, right? Just like, you know, the, the idea of market citizenship, having a house, having a house means so much, you know, we're kind of manipulated into these investments, right? So we don't necessarily have the degree of choice that we're told that we have. I can, I can honestly keep going. I'm going to stop here. <laughs> Good. Great. Thank you. So uh, I'm going to speak from the non-economist perspective. <laughs> and just to make the point that when people were being thrown out of their homes or they were being tricked into signing mortgages where they didn't understand the legalese and the fine print, they didn't have to understand how they were getting screwed by this economic system. So I think it's really helpful to separate this uh, obscure, really complicated PhD-level economics from, from the social reality. And it's really important to have those arguments down and they need to be made accessible to people who can use them. But the real fight, you know, and and I mean, you know, a nonviolent fight, but the real resistance out in the street doesn't depend on that at all. And the millions of people who were cheated out of their homes, uh, you know, just experienced that, the outrage around that, and, and didn't need to be explained how it worked. You know, they knew that, the economy was rigged. They're being ripped off. Mortgage loans was one of the ways that they're being ripped off. But that 
the whole system is, um, uh, what should we say, rigged against everyday working people, and that's not okay. I'd say another general principle of movement building um, you know, is, is to sort of define things in a way that makes them as big as possible and that helps as many people as possible to get together. Um, when it comes to pursuing a student boycott uh, against loans, um, you know, the, the stumbling block is always, well, are we going to tell young people holding those loans to default and to carry, you know, that black mark on your credit and to have your wages garnished and your Social Security garnished and the incredible, uh, you know, abuse that will be uh, poured down on you. Now, that said, 20% of student loan holders are already in default, and according to the statistic, two-thirds are somewhere on the road to default. Their loans are delinquent or they're in deferral or forbearance or one of these other fancy-named categories that means you're struggling. So two-thirds of people who own student debt are struggling. Why? Because we have an incredibly outrageous, unfair, rigged economy right now, which is not working for everyday working people, and especially marginalized communities and women and people of color who are being screwed more than anybody else on this. Um, so, uh, you know, for us to tell, you know, I feel for me, it, it's not my place to tell anybody, you know, to be the sacrificial lamb here. And it's hard to sell a movement that requires people to self-sacrifice. But I think there's another way to harness the movement. I think the imperative is to build that movement. Exactly how the movement should be built, I think, is a, is a subject for discussion. But the facts of student loan asset-backed securities, those facts are extremely outrageous. You know, they're, they add fuel to the fire uh, when you come to see how much everyday people are being abused by the system. So it's great to, you know, all the research that you've done and the history of this, it's really fabulous. Um, at the same time, I think most people are going to be out there fighting, not because they understand that level, and they don't need to, but just it, it gives them another um, kind of assurance, another sense of confidence that this is really, your outrage is more than justified, uh, as if you needed it, you know, to be justified. Um, so it's really important, I think, that the student loan resistance movement, however it comes to be defined, it really needs to work in concert, you know, and, and the power of economic, there are many ways to assert the power of economic withdrawal. We don't have to create sacrificial lambs out of people who are holding student debt. There are all kinds of ways that we can stop the wheels of economic and ecological destruction. And those wheels are turning. And whether it's our predatory healthcare system, which is leaving behind, again, it's about 45 million people who do not either lack health coverage altogether or they have inadequate health care coverage and they can't really afford to use it. So, you know, it's a huge portion of people. The numbers who are in poverty are huge. It's said that one out of every two Americans is 
in or near poverty, and the recovery continues to go to the top. You know, a few years ago, it was 68 billionaires who held the wealth of 50% of America. That's 68 billionaires. It no longer takes 68 billionaires to hold the wealth of half of America. It's now three billionaires because they're getting richer and everybody else is getting poorer. You know, it's just, it's, it's off the charts. It's absolutely jaw-dropping what a deadly rigged economy we're in as our democracy is being unraveled. And I have to say a quick word about the war machine because this is where our money is going. 60% of the discretionary budget and more is going into fighting these absolutely uh, catastrophic wars. They're not just unproductive, they're counterproductive. They make us less secure, they bankrupt us at home, they extract our resources from the things that we need to be putting them into. And I think student loan debt is key here because it does keep people out of contention. It removes people. It puts them into those three jobs that they've got to be working round the clock. It completely removes them from political action. So um, that power, the power of youth movements is huge. Whether you're looking at the civil rights movement and the role of young people in actually pushing forward the initial boycotts that really triggered the civil rights fights of the 50s and the 60s, or the anti-war movement that brought the troops home from Vietnam, uh, the women's movement. Young people have always been at the forefront, and without that, it just doesn't happen. So for all those reasons, it's really important that we work together. And I think you know, young people are at the forefront of the climate movement, too. So working with Extinction Rebellion, as well as the school strike, uh, and working with the immigrant rights movement as well, and the anti-deportation movement, as well as the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and the anti-police violence movement. These movements are all fundamentally led by young people, and everyone is carrying all of those burdens. You know, it's not like we survive with one organ system. You know, as in training for medicine, you you get you get sort of. Uh, nudged into one corner or another, you know, as if you could live by your heart alone or live by your brain alone. You know, we're, we're whole people, and, and we need more than one thing. We need all those critical life support systems to be working for us. Education is one of them, and, you know, that's, that, that's where I'd love to see us go with this, is to explore how do we help bring this movement together. And in my experience, people out there in the movements now really get it. They really get that the clock is ticking, whether you're looking at the economic crash or the uh, nuclear weapons um, you know, uh, confrontation, conflagration, or endless wars, or the climate. You know, We're all on a countdown right now, and it makes it really critical that we get together and we start working in a convergent way. If we simply aligned our calendars and we all agreed to strike, in our own ways, whatever they are, and people can make their own decisions, but we can present people with you know, a variety of options. And there will be, and I must add the labor movement, of course, too, because the teachers you know, have really demonstrated the power of the strike right now. They've sort of revived it after decades in which it was dormant. And that's a strike taking place really without the blessings of our political establishment or even established union leadership. 
There's grassroots uh, uprising that's taking place right now. And if we can align our calendars so that, you know, we got the same strike going on and develop in our communities the ability to support those strikes, you know, then we're talking about bringing the wheels of economic and ecological destruction to a grinding halt. And that will be a real game changer. Well, uh, you know, it, it strikes me that, especially in the United States, especially uh, less so in Europe and also in Europe, if you look at uh, the, the facts of the lives of those who are deeply in debt, not only student debt but also medical debt, uh, unrelated debt, you know, you see significantly higher rates of divorce, high rates of childlessness, high rates of suicide even. And, and you wonder, and you compare that to people who are objectively in a similar economic situation without that debt, people who have similar net worths uh, but who don't, uh, you know, who don't have to deal with debt, and you find that those people are usually much happier, much, much more contented, they have better family lives. Uh, and it goes, it goes to the fact that I think that the, the fundamental struggle beneath economics, beneath politics, uh, you, need, you need a revolution in, in public ethics, in, in, how, in how people... Uh, conceptualize morally the situation that they're in. Uh, you know, we live in a world where uh, being in debt is seen as, as being in a state of extreme moral parlousness. Uh, you know, in, in German, the word, the word for debt is actually, it comes directly from the word for guilt. Um, and so the, the first thing you have to do, in, in my view, is you have to convince a lot of these people who think that they're, you know, lazy or entitled or that they made a huge mistake, that they were the ones who were wronged, that, uh, that you, know, their, you know, that their misconduct is, is not a real thing and that the, the, real, uh, the real malefactors are institutions like, um, you know, like, uh, like the universities, like the student debt companies, like, uh, like the federal government that have for decades profited off uh, student debt. You have to tell people, you know, and it's a very difficult thing because these are people who have been trained their entire life to think that they've been uh, doing the wrong thing. You have to tell people, you're correct. You know, you're doing the right thing. Uh, and so it's, it's a very difficult struggle, but you have plenty of people who uh, they suffer a distinct non-freedom, not only because of their economic situation, but because of uh, of, a, of, of a sense of guilt imposed by society, and when you rectify that non-freedom, then you then you see uh, the, then you open them up to political action. I'm reminded of a plan that was released uh, a few weeks ago by Congressman Moulton of Massachusetts that said that proposed that you know we will forgive student debt of those who go and serve in the military, <laughs> and and it. It basically, what, what such a plan is saying is, you know, you're lazy and you're entitled and you did the wrong thing, but if you, if you volunteer to be cannon fodder and maybe you die, then, you know, then you've, you've, uh, you, you've, uh, you know, you've rectified, you know, the wrong that you've done, then you're, you're free to go. Yeah. <laughs>
think that's such an amazing point because I mean I think like what joins all of our uh, our, our intersecting issues right is that we're constantly this idea is imposed on us that we should take responsibility for systematic failures that it's our personal failing when we don't measure up to these you know I, I, idealized like successes that you know are promoted to us all the time like I mean we see it in environmental uh, change right you know stop using straws when the majority of, of plastic waste is you know from production, but whatever, just an example. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it strikes me that the the fundamental question is uh, is an ethical one. It, it's about uh, any any movement to uh, any movement for for student debt boycott or for mass action to relieve student debt. And I, I'm a big thank you for for bringing in uh, the student debt jubilee, which is an idea I'm a, I'm a big fan of. Um, you know, it's. Uh, the first thing you have to do is is tell people, you know, you you did nothing wrong. The institutions are the ones that did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right, so um, I've got some questions for the panelists, um, and then we can take questions from you guys. Dr. Stein, I'll, I'll start with you. In, in 2016, you were the only presidential candidate who ran on a policy of canceling student debt as part of a Green New Deal. Um, and three years later, obviously, this debate has gone a long way. I, I really just love that I have you and David here because of what... David is doing right now to try and, you know, what, sometimes you don't always run to win. You run to move the conversation. And in moving the conversation forward, you know, how can we not be distracted by, you know, the the Democratic primary in a sense that, you know, we've got these debates where we've got 10 candidates on a stage and the moderators' mics are going off and, like, no, nothing is really getting done by the political mainstream. How do we keep moving the conversation forward um, outside of this process that we see is fairly dysfunctional, even if you want to participate in it? We all know it's somewhat dysfunctional. So, you know, I'd say remember, the facts here speak volumes, the largest voting block right now is 100 million people, largely black, brown, millennial, and poor, who are not voting. That's the largest voting block. It's almost twice as large as the Democratic and Republican constituents. Okay? So most people are not buying this charade. And I find especially this time when, when the memory of, of 2016 and the, the, um, <clears throat> the sabotage of Bernie Sanders' campaign is so fresh in everyone's mind that even more people are not buying it. And um, the supposed reforms that were going to happen in the DNC, you know, that corporate money was going to come out, but then somehow it got back in, and then maybe it's out and maybe it's in, and, you know, you're not supposed to be following what's happening with corporate money, but it's very clear you know, that money is there. There's more Wall Street money actually behind the Democrats in 2018 than ever in history. So money is not shrinking here. It's growing. And that's big money. It's not small contributor money. Big money is bigger than ever. The reforms that we're going to take the superdelegates out have somehow magically become irrelevant. I don't know if you followed that, but the superdelegates who essentially 
you know, uh, they, they were a major part of the program for how the Democratic um, uh, nomination got stolen from, from Bernie Sanders. The superdelegates, which are basically insider appointments, they're not elected, uh, they were supposed to be removed. That was going to be the big uh, reform. Well, what happened was that those superdelegates got removed until it came to the second vote at the, at the DNC, at the Democratic Nominating Convention. But now you've got enough candidates in the mix. And how did that happen? But somehow you have enough candidates that there's no way this is going to be decided in the first election. No one candidate is going to have a majority. So we're right back where we were before. You know, we had the leaked emails last time that told us about the, what were they called, the Pied Piper candidates that the Clinton campaign was encouraging in order to bring out the worst of the Republicans that they thought would be easiest to beat, but that was Donald Trump. You know, and so on, and the collusion with the media, um, as well as the financial arrangements that allowed the Clinton campaign to basically be in charge of how the DNC was spending its money. You know, it, it's clear that if we're not getting Joe Biden, we're getting, you know, a Hillary 2.0 in one way or another. The progressive candidates are going to be played off of each other. So I think it's just really important to keep. You know, keep your brain working. Don't go to sleep. Don't let them intimidate you. There's a lot of shaming and blaming going on right now. The whole Russiagate uh, conspiracy theory. <laughs> um, not that Russians weren't trying to interfere. We try to interfere. Everybody's trying to interfere. Let's get real about it. And $100,000 worth of Russian internet research agency Facebook ads, $100,000. How did that compare to $6 billion worth of free primetime TV given to Donald Trump? You know, so all of these little scenarios have been created um, in order, number one, to warmonger and to create a new, a new Cold War, which is great for distracting us from the economic war being conducted on working people and black and brown people here and around the world. Um, uh, it's also, you know, it's also... Great for then silencing the press, which is being intimidated right now, and you've got the corporatization of the press, and Russiagate sort of plays into all that, but especially it vilifies political opposition. It's been an effort to really smear and um, tarnish political opposition as you know Putin puppets. Um, so it's really important not to let that stuff. Uh, intimidate you or silence you. Remember, we have the majority. We also have the moral high ground here. We've got 100 million people who are voting with their feet, saying that the corporate political choices being stuffed down their throats are not acceptable. So, you know, I'd say number one about how not to get distracted from the uh, token measures to acknowledge student debt. Um, I think it's important to stay tuned to what's happening, but don't buy it. You know, don't um, uh, don't be lulled into um, sleepwalking into this next election, and don't be lulled into forgetting about building political resistance. Part of, as you know, as Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. That demand has to be there in the political realm as well. 
And just witness the fact we weren't allowed into the debates, even though 75% of Americans were screaming for opening up the debates so it just wouldn't be the two, you know, Coke and Pepsi talking heads. They wanted to hear other options. They were denied that. Most people really wanted an open debate. And 60% of Americans, in fact, are calling for another new independent party. You know, if you actually look at the numbers, people are screaming for other options, for more voices and more choices. The last thing I want to say here is tune in to ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting is a voting reform that removes the fear, the fear-mongering, the blaming and the shaming. It makes the concept of a spoiled election or stolen votes absolutely impossible. It lets you rank your choices for president or governor or senator, whatever. If your first choice for president is an underdog and it loses, your vote is automatically reassigned to your second choice. So you're never inadvertently helping somebody else. Thereby, you can't be um, vilified for holding an alternative point of view. Ranked choice voting is passing against uh, the uh, work of the dominant political parties. It's passing largely by voter referendum. But I'd say it's really important for unleashing more voices and more choices so that we can have real debates, we can have real discussions, not about the horse race or no, not about who should get out of the race because they don't deserve to be in it. You know, that's all distraction. We deserve to be discussing our real options, that we are being screwed economically, we're being deprived of a climate future, we can't afford our health care, our resources are being stolen into these predatory wars. This is outrageous what's being perpetrated against us, and we must not allow ourselves to be silenced or to be forced into this kind of engineered um, uh, you know, uh, agreement where we just sort of fade from the scene. We need to take ownership of our democracy and our electoral process. Great. Thank you. Um, so going off one of the things you said before about how the, you know, the sacrificial lamb aspect of a, a student debt boycott, we, you know, obviously there are very huge risks in choosing to not pay your student debt, but as we've also been talking about, there is a huge number of people who are basically already not paying it off or they're paying, you know, they're making a payment, but they're only hitting the interest and they'll never touch that principal for the rest of their lives unless they win the lottery. Um, and talking about the fact that the majority of Americans are disenfranchised from the political process, I think my argument is that maybe not... There, come, there will come a time when the disenfranchised people, the 44 million people who have student debt who are in that larger coalition of people who are disenfranchised, who, who know the system is screwing them and they want to change, I think at a certain point, given the, the crises we're in, that will become more appealing and people might be more willing to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, if we're all going to stop paying, I'll throw my towel in. Um, or my towel, whatever. Um, so um, Greta Thunberg, who's been involved in leading the school strikes for climate in the past year, has called for a general strike um, on the 27th of September, I believe, to coincide with the United Nations um, general... Uh, there's an assembly on emergency climate action in New York City, and Greta Thunberg is calling for a general strike. 
I've thought particularly that that would be a good time for it. I have a question for you, David. I'm curious. First, could you talk a little bit about what you're doing with the Mike Gravel campaign? Oh, uh, so... Uh, <laughs> So Senator Mike Gravel, uh, with whom some of you might be familiar, uh, former U.S. Senator from Alaska, famous for reading the Pentagon Papers, uh, briefly a candidate for president back in 2008. Uh, now he's fully retired, but uh, basically we're running a campaign to he's – not, he's not running to win. He's, he's 89 and is a bit old to, to actually serve as president, both in our view and, and in his. Uh, but – we're running a campaign to get his views out there, hopefully to qualify him for the for the Democratic debates in July, possibly in September, um, you know, so that he can critique a lot of the establishment candidates like Joe Biden uh, to their face, and also to, to put forth a radical critique of, of American empire and of, uh, of uh, you know, of, of a broken economy uh, as a whole. Right now, we're about 10,000 donors away from the, from the threshold. Great. Um, I, I have thought that your campaign is so remarkable because, and, you know, the senator may be a little too old and, the, you know, the, the media has noted that a lot of you guys that are running the campaign are a bit young. I, I read into your background, you ran for mayor in Ardsley, New York, when you were 17? Uh, 16, yeah. 16. <laughs> too, too young to vote. But he, he ran for mayor because he knew that he could shift the conversation even though they were possibly going to legally disqualify you. I think that is really remarkable. And the fact that you have utilized this tactic to have this um, octogenarian, you know, old badass get Gen Z's voice into the presidential debates I think the, the generational dynamic there is very interesting, but I also think that the, you know, especially with student debt, we've seen with, with Gen Z, like the reaction to the Parkland shooting and the, you know, the reaction to the climate crisis, that younger people, I mean, it is kind of unique that high schoolers have been leading a lot of the emergent social movements in the past few years, which even, I think, in the 60s is not necessarily the case. It was more college students. But now you have, you know, very young people that are calling for more militant action. Do you think that Generation Z will... How do you think they will feel when they, when they graduate from college? Do you think they'll consider a boycott of student debt more than, say, millennials have? Or, or Gen X or, or um, boomers? Oh, absolutely. I think that Generation Z, and I think some of the younger millennials, but especially Generation Z, they've grown up in, in a world that where ev every system is broken. You know, they were young when, young when the 2008 financial crisis hit. Uh, they saw, you know, the disaster that was the invasion of Iraq and the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, they've never... Uh, they've never known a country where things seem to be working properly like a lot of millennials did, like a lot of Generation X did. Um, and so they know more than any other generation that you know, some sort of, of radical change, some sort of, of revolutionary change uh, you know, is imminent and is necessary. And that's why so many of them are supporting candidates like Bernie Sanders uh, because they, they know that the system as it is cannot survive and should not survive for for a long time yeah, and you see that with the climate crisis you see that with the you know the poverty that that's so common in this country um, 
And so I think that Generation Z, whatever you want to call them, some people call them uh, Zoomers now, uh, uh, you know, they, I think they, uh, as a generation, they would be extremely receptive to, to mass action. That's why so many of them are embracing mass action independent of, of government uh, that, uh, you know, that calls for abrupt and radical changes to the economic structure of this country. Great. Um, Daniela, can you talk about how this socially unproductive industry of not only lending to students, but also just securitizing student debt, turning it into financial instruments, all without, you know, real... I mean, you sign the paper on your student, on your master promissory note that says something to the effect of, you agree to pay all um, reasonable, it uses the word reasonable, fees and fines that may be incurred while servicing your debt. It, do, you, do you think in your perspective as an economist that it is reasonable to have 17-year-olds or high schoolers take out these massive loans and then have them be gambled on by the financial services industry? Absolutely not, especially with the you know existing information asymmetries, knowing that we don't have access to the information that would allow us to gamble on these debts, right? But somebody else is able to, you know, in a in a closed room with a bunch of other investors, uh, gamble on our debt. Um, and I think it's really important. I mean, this comes from like you know my studies, but I can try to you know explain it in a, in a clear way. But um, these types of, of, of um, securities are completely socially unproductive, right? So like I mean, a lot of the things that are gambled on in the financial sector nowadays are socially unproductive, meaning that, you know, when we invest in our education, right, we're, we're assuming that that investment for us directly is, is productive in the sense that we're enhancing our human capital, which means that our labor is valued more highly when we go into the workforce. Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, wages uh, adjusted for inflation have remained stagnant for the last 30-ish years at the same time as productivity going up rampantly. So we're working harder. We're getting paid pretty much the same as we were in the 80s, right? But at the same time, tuition has risen, uh, I don't know, something like, what was it? Uh, I think Bloomberg News said like 175% since... I'm sorry, I can't. I can't remember the exact date, but uh, not so long ago. So these investments, you know, based on our debts that we're incurring, just to really participate fully in this economy, just to be able to survive in this economy, are socially unproductive. Because what is the incentive behind this investment? Minsky would say, uh, you know, based on he has this theory called the financial instability hypothesis. Plain and simple, stability breeds instability. The only reason stability breeds instability is because in, in periods where the economy is doing great, investors get frustrated because they can't find risky enough investments. Investments to uh, give them the reward that they're seeking. So what have they been doing? Unfortunately, and I, you know, I think that the central bank is very well aware of this. There are all these loopholes in financial regulation. Um, there are these loopholes that allow, through technology, through financial technology, for these new investments to kind of seep in. That because of like the fact that they're through technological innovation, existing regulations just can't cover them. So they're able to create these new opportunities to take on more risk. You know, at our expense, all while gambling with our debts. Um, David Harvey talks about, a, who's also here at Left Forum giving a talk right soon, <laughs> talks about the concept of accumulation by dispossession. Um, so for me, what that means is, you know, we, we put in the initial capital, right? We, we put in the initial capital, but, you know, through our consumption, through our investments in our own, like, you know, skills and everything like that, and they take that money. And even through our investments in housing, right? Um, they take that initial capital and they, you know, gamble on the value that we're trying to create and, and, and take for ourselves. Um, and, and gamble on it and are able to accumulate a lot more money on our debt, on our struggle. And I just want to make a quick note about, like, you know, 
the inter- intersectional considerations here because there are income and wealth effects associated with student loan debt, meaning on a short-term basis, right, when you're trying to consume, you're overburdened by that payment. On a long-term basis, you know, you're, you're burdened by that stock of debt that you got to pay off over time, right? So if, you know, the wealth gaps exist, you know, most at, uh, you know, along racial lines, gendered lines, and especially at the intersection of racial and gendered lines, the people who are the most burdened by debt are women of color, people of color all across the country. So this is, you know, a, an issue of race, an issue of gender. And, and it's, I just wanted to state that and make sure that we're clear on the fact that this is an intersectional issue. <laughs> yeah, um, that's that's great. I, I think, and I know the you know having thought about this, the the question of refusing to pay your student loans as an act of political protest naturally does come with its risks. But I think there is a significant, and you know, with the Vietnam War era, we saw people who had positions of privilege, like students, saying, hell no, we won't go. We're not going to participate in this war that is killing people that are not so different from us, except for the fact that they live in a country that is not at the center of U.S. hegemony. They're not benefiting from U.S. imperialism the way we are, and we see our connection with that, so we want to, um, you know, I, I had a conversation with an older socialist comrade many years ago about um, he was burning his draft card, and he and his friends, and he, was, he emphasized that didn't prevent us from being drafted, but we did it as an act of resistance. I want to ask about um, if there was a movement of people demanding that student debt be canceled and that, you know, provoking a confrontation with the financial services industry, if, not if everyone, but if a portion of student borrowers specifically people with privilege who aren't at the intersections necessarily, could if they said, we're not going to pay, and they said that to these industries and made their statement in a way that was, you know, picked up by the media and provocative, what, you know, how do you think the, the financial services industry would react and to their, what is the threat to their bottom line here, specifically? Um, well, I mean, they're relying on our debt servitude to have something to gamble on to begin with, right? So, I mean, as a Marxist, we're always looking for the basis for class consciousness. So the basis here would be our, our joined uh, struggle and strife being burdened by debt. Um, and the student class of people burdened by debt is a large po- population. So it, and it spans a bunch of different you know, intersectional spaces, which would allow us to align on a unified front and be able to you know, amass pretty much the collective bargaining power to use it against the formal market and against the financial sector. You know, and I just think it's ridiculous, I want to add, that, you know, the central bank was so willing to bail out the banks and, you know, get creative to try to, like, you know, right. remove all of that risk from the financial sector by acquiring all of those securities, right? Why can't get, they get creative with households? Isn't the real sector more dependent on our consumption and, and our com- complicity than, than it is on the, the leveraged financing of the financial sector? They can't do anything if they don't have our capital to start with, Right. So I, I think we could move on to questions, if you guys want to open it up. The biggest driver of bankruptcy is actually people who have gone into medical debt, and they actually, the majority, have health insurance. You know, so what does that tell you about how these issues are connected and how the insurance is really another predatory exercise of the financial services industry, really. So, yeah, I mean, we are being screwed on so many fronts. It's, it's like it's a perfect storm for coalition building and getting us all out there together and aligning our calendars and 
asserting all of these issues and really demanding substantive change. You know, and because health and climate and the economy and education are fundamentally one, you know, the Green New Deal is actually a detailed plan that addresses all of those things. And I could easily see, and in fact, on many fronts, I find these conversations are just coming up. They're sort of bubbling to the surface already. How can we start working together at the community level and then also at higher levels, but starting in our communities, bringing these groups together, perhaps for emergency response networks or, um, you know, for... Uh, strikes or, or boycotts or demonstrations or supporting um, workers who are going on strike, um, supporting uh, immigrant groups at risk when ICE is going to be coming into the community. I mean, there are just so many emergencies that are hitting our communities right now. It's a, it's a great place to start locally building these alliances on and beginning larger discussions at the regional and national levels about how we can bring these networks together. You know, the way the way I would conceptualize a student loan boycott would be, you know, a sufficient number of people agreeing that if, say, okay, if 400,000 of us uh, sign up um, yeah, to boycott student loans by June 1st, 2022 or, or whatever, uh, then we'll, we'll go through with it if, if we reach a, a sufficient number. And if you, if you have enough people to really, um, you know, to really hurt, uh, you know, a student loan company or, or, or a debt servicing company or, or any of these institutions that profit off it, then the logical consequence, if you win, you know, of course, they'll, they'll do anything to stop you. Um, if you win is that every single uh, predatory and parasitic industry, uh, you, know, you know, those that benefit off medical debt, uh, the, those that benefit off uh, off mortgages, stuff like that, uh, all of them will be will be threatened. And yeah, I mean, if you if you win on on, on student debt, then it's then it's overwhelmingly likely that you're going to be winning on on medical debt as well, because the the model will be established for how you how you organize independently of any major powerful institutions in this country of how you organize the people to uh, you know to to cast off the bonds of debt. Yeah. I just wanted to add, I think, yeah, I mean, this, this all ties into the overarching issue of, of, of debt bondage, debt, debt slavery, debt servitude. I mean, we're, we're um, again, like, I feel like, I mean, it's, it's possible just looking at the extension of, of, like, just regular credit availability, like personal loans and credit card debt at the same time as, you know, people being overwhelmed by medical debt, um, literally just to survive. We shouldn't be going into debt to, to maintain a livelihood. We shouldn't be going into debt to survive. All while people are acquiring a ton of debt to use it as leverage to invest in stuff that really has no material um, effect on their circumstances. And I just want to back that up to say why should getting educated require that you go into lifelong debt in a way that's unpayable? I mean, what an absolutely absurd way to define education. Yes. And I want to get back to one of the original ideas that we put out originally, which is that there is a moral imperative here. You know, and, and that imperative, you know, at least as it comes up in my mind, is that uh, the adult generation you know, the parenting generation. One generation doesn't create another generation 
in order to uh, exploit it, you know, and devour it. And now we have a generation that's being used as a cash cow, basically, for the one percenters in the older generation. And that's just like no society ever survives by devouring its children. And that's kind of what's happening here. (laughs) And one other analogy I have found very powerful is that you don't take your kids to the ocean and throw them in and say, learn how to swim. Education is what we do. You know, it is a life support skill. You have to teach your kids how to swim if they're going to be in the ocean. you got to teach them the skills they need to survive in an economy. And for a long time in the, you know, throughout the 20th century and before, we provided a high school education for free because it was an essential skill. Well, in today's economy, you need post-high school higher education in order to survive in the economy. So this is not a subject for debate. I mean, this is just plain, rock-bottom, solid human values. We need to be providing high-quality education through uh, college and graduate school, period. First, I'd just like to add that the issue of debt bondage, one of the many things I read about in this like investigation of, of the history of all this is that the Roman Empire, well, I guess it might have been right before they became a formal empire, they fought several very bloody wars for hundreds of years over the issue of debt bondage. And the solution came from the uh, secessio plebis, where the, you know, you had the patrician class who were the wealthy landowners, you know, the, the political elite. And then you had the plebeians who were the vast majority. The, the secessio plebis was a, basically a general strike where the, the Roman plebeians would just walk out of the city, camp out in the wilderness, and all the rich people were starving. I mean, they fought hundreds of years, to, and the, the end result was that they banned um, Nexum, which was the, the debt contract, the debt bondage system that they had. So I just wanted to add that on. There are certain for-profit colleges that shuttered their doors and left people with student debt, degrees that were useless, no jobs. And there were um, some financial strikes where student debtors did refuse to repay their loans because, I mean, they really couldn't. It wasn't, you know. And I think in some of those instances, um, they, you know, whatever case was made out of it, they, they ruled in the favor of the students. Now, I think... In some of those cases, we've seen Betsy DeVos's Department of Education um, has reversed some of those decisions, and you know the public student forgiveness, uh, public student loan forgiveness program has been, you know, it's like 98% of the people who applied for it and paid for like 10 years are just finding out now. It's like, well, you don't get your loans forgiven just because. Um, so that's that's one example. There have been successful student debt strikes on sort of an individual institutional basis, but. Um, I don't think that's very well known, and I don't think it, um, yeah, it, it has to be more well known before um, something else would happen. Anyone else? Uh, there is the example, uh, you know, the Corinthian 15, the 15 students at, at Corinthian colleges, which was this chain yeah. of for profit colleges who refused to pay. But I think, you know, I, I, I absolutely agree that before you, you start some mass movement, you have to prove that you, that you can win. So what I would suggest would be, you know, of course, the, the student uh, loan industry is dominated by a few major players. But if you, if you pick off a smaller one, you know, uh, one that uh, could be damaged uh, by, by a relatively small action, you organize on that level and you, you win in some way or you, uh, 
you find some some agreement and, and you you defeat them, uh, that would be it would send a huge shockwave throughout the entire industry, throughout the entire country that uh, mass action can uh, you know can triumph, and then you 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 use that model, you replicate it. Uh, in order to, to take on a larger player. Another thought. Oh, okay. Just, just yeah, one no, other right. thought there. You know, it's, it's hard. It's kind of a catch-22 because it's really hard to get a loan forgiven until you have numbers. So, you know, one approach to that is something I think along the lines of what you were suggesting mm-hmm. earlier that, you know, you could have something like a petition or something, you know, where... where you know, I could see it easily going viral. You know, where a petition that just states that student loans are unacceptable and that we intend to resist them and we encourage people, you know, to sign up here, um, you know, in order to network for further action. And we call on whoever of these, you know, Navient or, or whoever, you could target one of them or maybe many of them to say that we will we will be anticipating mass action you know in uh, you know January of 2020 or whatever um, uh, in the absence of your taking specific action and I mean it could be even a call to sit down and negotiate mm-hmm. and and you could get millions of people <laughs> signing on demanding that they negotiate. And at that point, you haven't actually incurred the risk, but you may be able to assert the power of the numbers. You know, it'll be hard to be number eight or number 25 to sign, but when you're, you know, number 20,000, yeah. I also wanted to add, like, I mean, I think there's the potential here to try to, like, amass a movement around this intergenerational empathy that's that's for all these specific types of debts that are incurred for survival, subsistence, uh, for, for livelihood, right? I mean, uh, you know, that that could be the basis of establish, uh, establishing a broader class consciousness, right? Yeah. We've got boomers with, with majority boomers with mortgage debt. We've got the general population with medical debt, right, and especially the poor. You know, we have students with student loan debt. If we can join, join on our mutual debt bondage, I mean, like, yeah. starting with student loan debt, we can go really far, and we can really leverage our own debts against the financial sector that forced us to incur them to survive. One thing that I found when I was examining the student loan asset-backed securities, reading through the, you know, the documents, um, some of them give indications about um, where the student borrowers are located in each asset, and the majority, well, not the majority, but a large proportion of the borrowers in the assets I was looking at were either in California or New York. You know, the UC system and the, the SUNY system where, you know, we have these large um, public university systems, the largest in the, the country, um, are actually holding probably a majority of the assets actually involved, of the debt actually involved in these assets. But, you know, each asset is split up so they have people from every state. So it makes it sort of you know, it's, it's um, Dr. King even cites this in his in the I've been to the mountaintop speech. He says when Pharaoh wanted to keep the people apart, he kept the slaves fighting among themselves. Mm-hmm. They have us, you know, separated within these assets um, so that we can't communicate with all the. You know, you couldn't organize a boycott of one student loan asset backed security because we're all over the place. But I, I think it's really important point that you were making before about the you know, targeting the institutions. For instance, the SUNY system, um, you know, the governor is directly meets with the, um, the, the board of trustees of the SUNY system, and there, there is definitely a direct 
um, connection there to the, the state government. So I think that's worth consideration. I think the two questions before us are, how are we getting screwed and how do we kind of communicate that to people? Um, and, you know, especially in, in researching these student loan asset-backed securities, it is so convoluted. Um, one of the things that uh, Professor Richard Wolf um, always says that I, that I love and has been really inspirational to me is that this stuff isn't complicated. They want you to think that it's complicated exactly. so you don't find out how you're getting screwed. Exactly. And I think it's really crucial for people to understand that it's, it's not just the fact that you know, the, they're, they're lending us this money and they're servicing it and the interest rates are high. It's also that they're using it in this very you know, absurd, malicious way. But how do we communicate that to people in a, you know, a way that's presentable? One, one idea that Daniela and I were discussing, we didn't unfortunately manage to do this, but we were going to make a video where we were going to be sitting at, a, you know, sitting at a table kind of discussing, and I was going to say, Daniela, I, I came up with this idea for how to pay off my student loans. I'm going to go and I'm going to buy some student loan asset-backed securities and, you know, I'm not going to pay my student loans for 50 years and then in 2060, when those student loan asset-backed securities are finally at their maturity date, I'll pay them off with all that money I earned. And, you know, that, that's just neither here nor there. But, but, but that is the absurdity of it is that, you know, we, we are getting screwed and I think a lot of us do know we're getting screwed but we don't even understand how monumentally screwed we're getting. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I just want to put that out there. But, yeah, so the questions we have, how are we getting screwed? How do we communicate that to people effectively? And also, who do we really want to target um, in any kind of effort with this? Um, so one of my favorite tweets that I've seen in a long time um, is, you know, for the oppressor, peace is not the absence of violence, but the absence of a response to the oppressor's violence, right? Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's, it makes sense logically that most of this stuff would, would have to, well, like, I mean, for, for, the, for the purposes of the, the ruling class, like, that most of these things would have to go undetected. We would have to be fully unaware of our subjugation, right? We have to, you know, have pretty much no idea how to fight it and not have the tools to do so. And I mean, in the social media era, right, we don't withhold our labor anymore to the extent that we used to, right? We don't, um, you know, we don't strike to the extent mm -hmm. that we used to. Mm -hmm. We, uh, unfortunately, we, we kind of use social media and we could use it in a different way, but we use it as this dissociative space, right? Mm -hmm. This space that we enter that actually can facilitate activism, but often impedes activism, but it doesn't have to, right? Um, but yes, um, I, I mean, obviously we could be using social media better to like form our coalitions, but um, yeah, I just... Um, I think having these conversations is important. It's kind of difficult to talk about how we can get everyone to establish less consciousness because that's what we're talking about, right? Um, you know, Marx would say there's a great portion of the population who will never actually understand their subjugation because they're taught to believe that they have something to be gained from this system, mm -hmm. that by participating in it, um, that it can work for them. Mm -hmm. um, but really, they're just being tokenized. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah, I, I, I feel that frustration every day, and I'm sure we all do. <laughs> Here's my thought on... How am I getting screwed? How are we getting screwed? How are you getting screwed? I feel like uh, they win the minute you feel like you have to justify your sense of um, uh, uh, that you are being ripped off. You don't have to justify that. You know, I mean, you can just point to your own. For me, it's like, why in the world? 
should a young person go into debt in order to acquire a basic survival skill? Period. No society does this. You don't see, you know, out there in the biological world, you know, <laughs> the younger generation of cats or dogs is not, you know, indebted to their older generation. That's not the way it works. And furthermore, that social progress depends on the liberty and the imagination of the younger generation. Enough said. The rest is... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's techno-speak. That techno-speak is important because you have to be able to fight it head-to-head, -head, but you don't have to do it. The economists on the case can do that, and they can also <laughs> write up for you, you know, the, the two-sentence explanation, and it, you know, it involves a little bit of study if you want to have the fight at that level, and more power to you if you do, but the people who burned their draft cards didn't need a you know, an explanation of the war. They just knew that everybody was getting screwed by that war. There was no winner. This isn't helping us. It's, you know, I'd say the more intuitive and gut level you can keep it, the easier it is to mobilize people. And that, the more that mobilization grows, then it becomes, it takes on a life of its own. And to my mind, when I was first, um, when, I, when I first ran for national office in 2012, that was like the issue that was on fire. I couldn't believe it. There was a student debt movement that was exploding right under our noses. So starting in 2012, we made ending student debt and making public higher education free really at, at, at the center of our campaign along with the Green New Deal. In fact, we made it a part of the Green New Deal. And you don't have to justify that. You know, It's like everybody knows this. You know, It's just sort of percolating... Uh, it's like the elephant in the room, or it's the emperor with no clothes. You know, everybody knows that. And don't feel like it's on you to justify it. This is your reality. It is the reality. And the more it gets talked about, the more power it will have. And then in terms of this question, who are we targeting? Um, you know, there's an important strategy discussion that has to go forward here. It's not immediately obvious whether we're targeting the loan companies. In my view, it's the political system that enabled them in the first place. And just solving one issue, that is education, isn't going to solve our health care, the climate crisis, uh, the endless wars and nuclear proliferation. You know, uh, all of that needs to be solved. It all needs... Uh, a democracy, a true small d democracy that we have to take back. So to my mind, you know, that's what a political party is. A political party is a broad-based coalition across issues and across generations and across geography because no one person can do this alone, but we need a very broad, system-wide, comprehensive uh, rebellion <laughs> in order to... Uh, you know, win back our future because it's falling between our fingers right now really fast. So I'd say let's mobilize and there are some very good political frameworks that you can uh, link forces with to help make that happen. Well, I think on, on the question of, of, how we're, of how we're being screwed, I think that, you know, it, it's extremely important for any political movement that focuses on, on student debt as an issue to, to kind of articulate the obvious, uh, you know, thing, which is that when you're deeply indebted, whether it's student debt or medical debt or, or any type of debt, uh, you're, you're, you're not free and you're in a state of, of deep unfreedom. Uh, 
And it's important for, for the left broadly to kind of reclaim the mantle of, of a freedom movement. You know, the, the right historically, you know, definitely in the last few decades, has, has, you know, has called itself a movement for liberty and freedom. But focusing on, you know, as John Dewey wrote about, you know, that you're not free if, if you have, 20, uh, you know, $50,000 in student loans. And you're not free if you, uh, uh, you know, have to pay uh, a certain amount each month to, to some company. Uh, you know, saying that we the left are going to make you freer by, free, uh, by uh, setting you free from, you know, the, this, uh, the shackle of, of, uh, of being indebted. Uh, I think that that's an important thing. I think on the question of, of who are targeting, I, I definitely agree with Dr. Stein that, you know, obviously the, the loan companies are a very good uh, villain in the story, especially, in, especially when you're framing it politically. But ultimately the goal should be forcing some sort of political movement because right now you, know, you see Bernie Sanders and Ilhan Omar are calling for something along the lines of, of debt forgiveness of massive debt forgiveness, but they're on the fringes. You know, when you when you force the conversation, then you see a lot of people, uh, you know, on the center left and the center say, you know, this. I guess we're going to have to do this because it's a way to avoid the very worst case scenario, which is a mass default. And can I just add one thing? This goes back to your question about how do we not get caught up in the circus of of the election? Because there are these. Uh, very enticing little carrots hung out there, like that Ilan Omar and Bernie Sanders are saying uh, end student debt. But remember what happened to Bernie Sanders last time. And it wasn't just Bernie Sanders, okay? Yeah. Before Bernie Sanders, it was uh, Dennis Kucinich. Before Dennis Kucinich, it was Jesse Jackson. Before Jesse Jackson, you know, you can go back one by one till uh, the end of the Second World War when it was uh, Henry Wallace who was a socialist that made Bernie look like a wallflower. And he was about to get the uh, nomination to run with FDR as his VP. At a time, FDR was very sick. It was known he was going to die in office. So it was essentially the presidential nomination. And this was in Chicago. And they declared a fire emergency as he was about to be nominated, they declared a fire emergency, adjourned the convention, and pulled strings. And the next day, instead of an ardent uh, socialist, uh, anti-war, extremely uh, gracious and smart, well-loved around the whole world, he was really an internationalist, instead of him, we got Harry Truman, the nuclear bomb, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the Cold War. That's who we got instead. And it's just important to remember, that ain't changed. And while we have some wonderful progressives who are speaking out, the whole party keeps marching to the right. So this process is not succeeding, and we don't have very much longer to go. You know, the UN uh, Science Commission tells us we got about 11 years to make uh, transformative change in our, in our climate policies or it's kind of going to be too late. So we don't have time, I think, <laughs> arguably there's not time to keep going through these paces here. We know where this goes. Watch it, influence it, but don't rely on what's going on in the two parties of war and Wall Street. They have some good people, but those people are being used as sheepdogs to prevent a real progressive movement from actually getting its feet on the ground and applying some leverage. I think that brings up a really important point, and I think 
the problem is, as you point out, we are kind of, you know, our, and, and we've been talking about this too, like our, our labor and our participation in, you know, society is linked to our education and our, our abilities. And it is kind of, you know, based on these degrees and credentials that honestly, they don't mean quite the same thing they meant even 10 years ago. And with the internet, I mean, people are educating themselves in, in vastly, you know, like very rapidly transforming ways. So the world is definitely changing and we have this archaic system that hasn't really caught up. I think that is why um, a disruptive, you know, movement that that is essentially threatening to burst the student loan, you know, bubble as as its kind of objective, which, you know, it does seem kind of counterintuitive. We don't want the economy to crash because then we'll all suffer, but we also it is our leverage that we they've given us this, you know, they've they've taken our debt and given it this kind of strange power because they're they're gambling on it in this way. So I think my answer to that is that I think targeting specific companies in this way would be good, but I think ultimately we, you know, the movement, it would probably start with targeting, you know, a smaller student loan company or, or you know, some aspect of the university system, but it would have to move to a larger strike against and a disruption against the status quo because otherwise they're never going to change these systems and and they'll just keep us you know doing the things we're doing until until it's too late um yeah would anyone else like to respond to that yes of course there are people who who uh acquire jobs without an education but i feel like you know with we exist in a social space that provides incentives so that we gather in the market to these these specific points, right? So, like, um, you know, we, we have these social incentives to get an education when the promise is associated with education, so we gravitate to this point in the market and, and, and provide our money or, like, you know, allow ourselves to be subjugated by debt so that we can acquire this thing, this 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 thing that carries social capital, of course, human capital as well, um, and it's like we're being lied to, and then this, like, you know, dates back to, like, the, the neoliberal frame originally, where just in general taught that, you know, to scale our successes and failures against that of others, right, and of course we know that it's shameful to not get on that that path of, you know, we're, we're told should be a path towards mobility, um, you know, to, to do the things that are socially normative, and education in some ways has become a social milestone. Um, outside of it just being, like, directly an investment, it's something that we're we're kind of expected to do to, to fully participate in this economy, right? And, and if I can just add to that, um, we're being put through these paces and made to feel like we have to get these degrees in order to justify our existence. Yes. But our whole education system is very screwed up. You know, it's not just the loans. It's the yeah. whole, you know, it's the school-to-prison pipeline, right. you know, and, and it's taking away the resources so that our schools become militarized and regimented and, and kind of the community building goes out of them. Um, it shouldn't be a burden to be educated. You know, it should be liberating to be educated, and that should be a right that we all have. It shouldn't be a requirement by a corporation. It should be a right that we have in our communities in a way that enriches us uh, from the get-go and every step of the way. And it would be hard to generate much of a mobilization around removing one piece of that noose, if you know what I mean. It would be hard to build a movement around that 
Um, so just as a practical thing, um, you know, we might want to fold that into some bigger effort towards liberation and, you know, and education in a bigger sense of the word. Uh, the way the way I see it, uh, yeah, at the current moment, you have you have something of a contradiction in that, you know, in order to to fully participate in the highest uh, reaches of the of the social sphere, of the of the economic sphere, of the political sphere, uh, you know, a college degree is, is essentially a requirement, just as a high school diploma was a requirement a hundred years ago and, and continues to be. Um, and the contradiction is that. Uh, you know, there are a huge number of people who simply can't afford to go to college or who, who can't afford to go to college without burdening themselves with a huge amount of debt. Uh, and so there, there are two ways to address that contradiction. The first is to, is to ameliorate that stigma, and the second is to, is to make education, you know, a college-level education, a right. Um, I think, you know, both are, are compelling. I think that, you know, the, the sense that, that a college diploma, which is, you know, not... You know, I, I, I've never thought that people, you know, actually learn a whole lot in college. Um, I think that, you know, I think that it's, it's an unattractive uh, social thing. Uh, but I, I think that it's too prevalent a cultural force and it, it's too entrenched in people's minds to, to truly, uh, you know, to truly be, be eliminated. And so I think that the second option of making college education free for all and forgiving student debt and making it... Uh, you know, a right and, and a, you know, uh, just as much a right of passage, a right of passage, I, you know, I don't mean a, a right uh, as in the Constitution, but I mean a right, R-I-T-E, a right of passage just as, you know, high school uh, diploma is, uh, is now, I think that that's the more compelling option. Yeah, like, if, so I think, honestly, if we're promoting the idea that education is a right, obviously it should be accessible to everybody, right? But And at some different points, we'd see people promoting it as an investment. But if that investment, you know, it, if it's an investment, it shouldn't be socially promoted to everybody, right? There should be alternatives put in place. And we have really shitty skill training, skills training programs in the U.S., right? So if the alternatives for human capital accumulation aren't there, aren't funded, aren't available to us, then it is a right, and we should all be able to access it for free. And can I add one other thing? This goes yeah. back to the question about targeting. I yeah. just want to make a, a, a really basic point that we don't just have to target institutions, we can target specific elections. And it's important to remember how many people are impacted here. It's enough to basically be a plurality that is a winning force in any election. A governor election, a city council election, um, you know, a school board election, and so on. And there are things that can be done at the local level, like San Francisco established a not not in terms of debt, but they did, you know, they they created a, a free uh, public college program. So there, and and anybody who gets elected to office, you know, has a lot of weight in their state legislature or in Congress, whatever. You can become an advocate. Uh, for uh, for debt reform and for ending debt, even though you don't single-handedly have the authority to erase that debt, you can be a very powerful voice. So I just want to like encourage people to think about leaning on whoever you vote for at the local level, at your state level, to include debt forgiveness and free higher education as a part of their basic platform. Because we can mobilize and organize people around that issue to actually win races. And it hasn't yet been uh, employed as a 
uh, as a political force, but it's, right. it's begging to be because it's huge and it's, it's so fixable uh, and it has impact at the local level. So yeah. consider that as a target. It, it really does seem like this is the moment when, yeah. you know, it's gone such a long way in just the past few years. A student debt boycott would have to be centered around, around class consciousness, as we've been saying, and around people who have the, the, you know, the privileges that come with education, which should be a right, but there are privileges, to use the privileges they have to connect their struggle with all of the people who are more marginalized and who are more oppressed. And I think that is so crucial to everything we're saying. Um, I, if any of you guys want to say a few more things, um, we just wrap it up and uh, call it a day. Um, I think, like, you know, student, student debtors, um, mortgage debtors, uh, medical debtors, we've all been lured into debt accumulation on the assumption that we'd be able to access full consumer citizenship, full ability to participate in this economy. Um, we should not go into debt over, you know, acquiring something that we're told that we need to secure our rights. Um, and I, I feel like that's the note that I want to end on. Great. And I'll just add to that that, um, you know, there's enormous power in this issue, you know, because it impacts so many people at, you know, the prime of their life and it kind of devastates you for the get-go. So this is a this is a perfect storm for organizing. And it's not the only issue, but it dovetails with everything else. And I hope that, um, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, grateful to Eli for, for convening this. And you know, advancing the issue because you don't see it being taken on right now. So everybody in the room here, I think, you know, gets a pat on the back for, you know, kind of being at the forefront of this. And I'd say just let's not stop here. You know, let's make this a beginning. And I wish we had a sign-up sheet here. Maybe I'll just put I'll put a couple out. And, you know, if you want to stay in touch, I don't think this is going to be the last of it. So nope. keep up the work. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, this is an issue that cuts across all party lines. Um, I think that it, it's something that has a tremendous, uh, you know, fundamental appeal to a lot of people, not only you know, not only from self-interest, but also from you know, a basic sense of, of morality. Um, and I just want to say that it, it's an incredible honor to be here with this distinguished panel and with, uh, and with all of you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, guys. One thing, um, Mike Gravel is running for president, not to win, but he is running to win, but he's running to change the conversation, and the most meaningful thing you could do for the campaign would be to, to donate to Mike Gravel's campaign. One dollar will help them increase their donor count and get them closer to the debate stage in July, correct? Yeah. Cool. So yeah, Mike Gravel 2020, it would be, it's really meaningful if you can donate to that. Thank you, everyone, so much for coming. Thank you.